Good evening, everyone. And uh, thank you, thank you, David, for leading us tonight. Uh, three weeks ago, we highlighted the danger of drift. I, I don't know if you, were, if you were here that night. And we made the point that the risk of drifting as a Christian or in the Christian life is, is very, very real. It can happen, it does happen, and many of us who were here three weeks ago acknowledged that we know someone who has drifted or who is currently drifting away from faith. Well, in Hebrews, the writer is, is all too aware of this possibility. It's, it's not a new phenomenon. And so as he begins the second chapter, which is where we've got to in this series, as he begins the second chapter of his letter written to Christians, he says these important words. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. And based on that verse and the next three, we discovered two key ways to avoid spiritual drift. And here they are. We live by God's written word. We read it. We listen to it. We meditate on it. We live by it. We submit to it. We obey it. And then secondly, we look to his living word. We look to Jesus, to his greatness, to his supremacy, to his salvation. And, and the first recipients of this letter, this, this epistle, were to pay the most careful attention to what they had heard from God and from his word. And what they were also to pay the most careful attention to was what they had heard about Jesus. Because those were, if you like, anchors that would keep them grounded, that would keep them from drifting away spiritually. Well, tonight we're picking up the text at verse 5 of chapter 2, but I want us to realize that we're, we're kind of still on the same page. I mean, literally on the same page of most of our Bibles. We're still listening to critical advice that will save us from losing our moorings and finding ourselves ending up somewhere that we, that we never intended to be as Christians, or maybe even somewhere we never thought we would be as Christians. Now, before we, we read to the end of the chapter from verse 5, we've also got to remember that the, the original recipients of this letter, the Hebrew Christians, were probably being hassled because they were followers of Jesus. They, they found themselves in a very difficult environment, a hostile sea to maintain the imagery, where kind of mounting waves and roaring riptides and strong currents were ever-present dangers. Someone has described this church that this, this letter was written to as a harried house church who were battling against the elements. That, that was the context they were, and it wasn't easy to be a Christian, and therefore the potential to drift away from their faith and to drift away from Jesus was all too real. It was right there, staring them in the face. And so as the writer of this epistle continues to put pen to paper, and as he keeps writing into this issue about making sure they don't drift away, he persists in highlighting and elevating Jesus. And this is something he has done right from the word go in this letter, because at the end of the day, what he is saying is, listen, you have got to stay totally focused on Jesus if you want to prevent spiritual drift. It really just boils down to that. That's why at the very end of the letter, he says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter 
of your faith. If you are going to avoid drifting away from Jesus, you've got to look to Jesus. You've got to stare at him. You've got to stay focused on him. So let's uh, hear God's word. Please stand with me for the public reading of Hebrews chapter 2 from 5 through to the end. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author or the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Was Jesus not already perfect? Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and his sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and my sisters in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that God helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had made to be like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because He humbled himself when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Grab a seat. As as David said right at the start, and, and as I wrote to him during the week, there is so much in those verses. This is rich, rich material. I mean, it is doctrinally deep. It is theologically intense. If you were here the very first week we started this series, I said that Hebrews is not for the theologically faint at heart. And it's not. But there's one phrase, and it's a phrase that doesn't so much stand out because this is one of these texts and portions of Scripture where literally every phrase stands out. But there is one phrase that captures and sums up what is needed and what is absolutely essential for Christian life and living. It's just four words. We've said it a number of times already. And it reminds us that what we look at matters, that what we focus on is vital, that where we fix our eyes is all important. And here are those four words. In some of your translations, I know it's five words, but here are the four words in the translation we read this evening. But we see Jesus. And by the way, this is the first time that the name Jesus appears in the book of Hebrews, which is, which is interesting given that the whole book is about elevating and raising Jesus. But this is the first time the name Jesus appears, and we'll come back to that in a moment. Because you see, seeing Jesus changes 
everything. Although it's not always easy to see him. It's certainly not easy to see him in Crystal HD. And therefore, we need to keep staring. We need to keep sharpening the focus. So, so what exactly do we need to see? What exactly can we see about Jesus? Well, what I want to do is kind of jump in here and attempt, and, and I really stress the word attempt, to unpack some of this meaty material. And I'm not going to unpack all of it. As David said to me before the start, I mean, there's a whole series in just these verses alone. So some of you are going to be frustrated by me tonight. I'll just put that out there. But at the end of it, you're going to go, why did you not deal with that part? Okay, I'm not going to deal with all of it. But let's, let's, let's jump in and deal with some of it. We've called this series Elevated Jesus. And the reason for calling it that is because one of the distinguishing features about this book is that it keeps saying that Jesus is greater than. Or Jesus is superior to a number of people and a number of things. So if you have a Bible in front of you, if I flick over to chapter 3, and you'll see that at the beginning of that chapter, it says explicitly that Jesus is greater than Moses. But in these first couple of chapters, the writer has made the point that Jesus is greater than and far superior to angels. And here in in verse 5, he keeps on with this message of saying Jesus is superior to angels. And he he does this by quoting something that was said years previously. And and I love the way he puts it. If you look at this, he says, but there is a place where someone has testified. Well, that place is the Psalms and that someone is David. And so the Hebrew writer grabs the hold of David's words from Psalm 8 and echoes them. And here they are. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him and crowned them with glory and honor. And you put everything under their feet. Now, the thing about this is that you can get ahead of yourself. And what we really need to do is recall the original intention behind these thoughts. Because you see, Psalm 8 is often referred to as a messianic psalm. Which basically means it's a psalm that refers directly to Jesus. And that is true. But it's also a psalm that celebrates the significance of human beings. It's a psalm that celebrates the significance of mankind in the universe. Now, what's really important is we've got to remember that the original recipients of Hebrews were probably feeling pretty insignificant in the grand scheme of things. I mean, they were downtrodden, I've already said. They were suffering. They were hassled. They were downbeat. They were treated badly in all likelihood. Nobody took this little group of Jesus followers very seriously. And so for the writer, to give them God's perspective on them, to hear about God's original intention for his people is truly astonishing. And so what Psalm 8 does, it it begins by celebrating God's majestic name. If you you have a chance to read, many of us know Psalm 8 well. O Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's how it starts. And so the Psalm starts by celebrating God's majestic name and then it reflects on the vastness of God's beautiful creation. When I look to the heavens and stars in the sky. And then it's a psalm that wonders at God's intention for puny little mankind. 
When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And so the psalmist contemplates the sheer expanse of the night sky and he's overwhelmed. But then he realizes, when I consider the heavens, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man, and notice it's in lowercase, son of man. What is son of man that you care for him? It's breathtaking just how incredibly significant and important mankind was intended to be. Think about our position here. What is the psalmist saying? Man was made lower than the angels for a little while. Now, that is not saying mankind was less important than angels. What this means is he's just making the point that mankind is flesh and blood. Angels aren't. We occupy an incredible position in the universe. We are not insignificant. And then think about honor. You crowned him, says the psalmist. You crowned mankind, the son of man, lowercase. You crowned the son of man with glory and honor. And then his authority. You have put, says the psalmist, everything under their feet. See, there's a sense there where the writer, the psalmist, is taking us right back to creation and reminding us, you know, you were made in the image of God, people. And because you were made in the image of God, you were given the task of filling the earth and subduing it and ruling over the fish of the sea and the birds and every creature that moves on the ground. Everything was put under mankind's feet. And so as the Hebrew writer quotes the psalmist, he's telling these beleaguered Christians, listen, you're not inconsequential. You're not insignificant. Think of your position. Think of your honor. Think of your authority that God intended you to have. But as we think about that, you go, hang on a moment. I mean, it it, it sounds incredibly uplifting, But did something not go wrong? Like badly wrong. Is that the way it actually is in the real world? Is it true that everything is subject to mankind? Well, of course it isn't. And we know that all too well. And so the writer of Hebrews makes this very point. Look at verse 8 with me. And now he stopped quoting the psalm. He's moved on, right? He says this, In putting everything under them, everything under mankind... God left nothing that is not subject to them. Right, brilliant. Yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. Too right we don't. Too right we don't. And why? Why do we not see everything subject to mankind? Because sin screwed everything up. Adam sinned. Man sinned, and as a consequence, man's God-given dominion was twisted, it was corrupted, and so when it comes to position, when it comes to honor, when it comes to authority in the universe, we've made a mess. We've made a mess environmentally, we've made a mess ecologically, we've made a mess personally. We can't even rule over ourselves, never mind anyone or anything else. So, okay, where's this going? Where's the writer taking us? 
Well, the writer has reminded his readers of how significant they were created to be, how they were significant they were intended to be, which in itself helps. But he has now also highlighted the problem, yet everything's not under our feet. So the question is, now what? And at this point comes verse 9. At this point comes the four-word phrase, but we see Jesus. We do not see everything subject to mankind, but we see Jesus. And because we can see Jesus, everything changes. Everyone changes, or certainly can. So was God's original intention for mankind scuppered forever? No chance. Why? Because we see Jesus. Was mankind significant, wrecked forever? No way. Because we see Jesus. And at this point, we can begin to grasp this as a messianic psalm. And all of a sudden now, the focus becomes Jesus. And so that phrase, son of man, that should begin to ring some bells because we know that this was a term that Jesus repeatedly used to describe himself. Son of man, uppercase, capital letters now. And therefore, because we know that, we can start rereading Psalm 8 that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 through a different lens. And what I love about this is the writer of Hebrews does it for us. So again, look at verse 9. But we do see Jesus, but we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while. But was he? Does it mean Jesus is somehow inferior or was made inferior to angels? Well, no, it doesn't. Because again, it's referencing the fact that Jesus became flesh and blood. Jesus became one of us. Jesus took on a human. He was made a little lower than the angels. But as the verse says, only for a little while. 33 years? Only for a little while. So the question then is, well, well, where is he now or what is he now? And as he writes on, he says, now he's crowned with glory and honor. And so what we need to see, we need to see an exalted Jesus Jesus is now in the ultimate position. Jesus is now in ultimate honor. Jesus now has ultimate authority, elevated Jesus. But the question is, how did he get there? How did he get there? Still reading verse 9. Because he suffered death. And, and, And right at this point is the shocking reminder of what stands at the heart of the Christian faith, because what stands at the heart of the Christian faith is a suffering, dying Jesus. Who, to borrow the words of another writer, says, who humbled himself to death and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus, the Son of Man, uppercase, dies. And as a result, back to the beginning of the verse, he's now crowned with glory and honor. Or as that other New Testament writer I just quoted says, therefore, because Jesus humbled himself to death, God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So how should we see Jesus? But we see Jesus. We have got to see Jesus high and lifted up, totally superior to, greater 
than angels. And the question is, do we see him like that? Do we see Jesus with the eyes of faith tonight, high and lifted up, crowned with glory and honor? But the writer of Hebrews isn't finished this sentence. And what he goes on to write and share is information that potentially alters every single one of our lives and every one of our inevitable deaths. And if you remember nothing else, do do take this phrase away with you. So that by the grace of God, he, he might taste death for everyone. That he might taste death for everyone. There's a bit of a problem now with this word taste. Because we think, does that mean he he sampled it? Isn't that what we think of when we think of taste? Did, Did he try a little bit of it? That's not what the original means here. Shake that kind of thinking out of your head. The word actually is to partake fully. Jesus went all in. Jesus totally died, fully died, and he died for everyone. He died for you. His death was substitutionary, if you like. And why? Why? To save us. Which is the reason that the writer uses the name Jesus in this section for the first time. Because Jesus was, his name was to be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And what does Jesus mean? Jesus means the Lord is salvation. We see Jesus. A savior. Now glorified. High and exalted, but a savior who died, who fully partook in death for everyone. And the writer of Hebrews needed his readers to see Jesus in those terms. But there's so much more to visualize. Because in, in verse 10, we gain a further insight into what the death of Jesus has achieved for mankind. Because he goes on and he says, In bringing, it has brought many sons and daughters to glory. Jesus died. Jesus tasted death for everything. And Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. But you know what? Jesus is currently in the process of bringing all of us, bringing many of us to that very place. An unaccountable multitude. That's what the word many means including these Hebrew Christians, they are now heading in that direction. They're on to grab the lyrics of that old gospel song. They are now on the glory train. That is their ultimate, that is our ultimate destination. We are going to be, the readers of this text are going to be part of that unaccountable multitude that the Apostle John gets a glimpse of that's so many that no one can count from every nation and tribe and language and tongue that will one day stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb and in front of Jesus and they will sing their hearts out, worthy, worthy. Then they will see Jesus face to face. Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. But not only that, he's bringing sons and daughters to glory. And it's not just simply a place. It's not just somewhere we arrive at. It's something we share. At this point in time, we will be, we as the sons of man, lowercase, we will be crowned with glory and honor for all eternity. 
And again, just to, just to quote another New Testament writer where he says, and God raised us up with Christ and he has seated us in the heavenly realms. That, that's where we reside. That is what we share. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms because of what he has done for us. We are in that position. We are in that place of honor. We have regained that authority that God originally intended mankind to occupy. Why? Because it's all because of Jesus. But we see Jesus, who is the what? He's the author. He is the pioneer of our salvation, or he is the founder, or he is the captain, or he is the champion. I don't know what your version says in front of you, and all of those are used in various translations. Jesus blazed the trail of salvation that we can now follow, and so he is bringing us to glory. He's driving that train. And notice in verse 11 how Jesus describes all those who are on board. You're my brothers and sisters. You're my siblings. And I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters. We are, again, to coin another New Testament phrase. We are co-heirs with Christ. And so in all of this, you can not only see how Jesus is far superior to angels, like miles superior, but we also can see how incredibly significant we are to God. And how incredibly significant these beleaguered, struggling, potentially drifting Hebrew Christians needed to hear this from God. They needed to see Jesus, who suffered death, who tasted death for them, and as a result of him suffering death and tasting death for them, is now crowned with glory and honor. And because he did that, they are ultimately destined for glory because Jesus is their pioneer of salvation and he is leading them there as his brothers and sisters. Can we see that? Can you see Jesus in that kind of high definition? Because if we can, then everything changes. But the writer still isn't finished. He's got more to say, and he's got lots more to say, I know. But I want to finish by jumping down to verses 14 and 15, because here the writer clarifies exactly what the suffering and death of Jesus and tasting death for everyone, what it accomplished. And in a nutshell, it accomplished the defeat of our two greatest enemies, death and the devil. That's what the writer says here. And we all know, and we've quoted the statistic, one out of one people die. It's inevitable. We can deny it. We can avoid it as long as possible, or we can certainly avoid talking about it. We can even fear it, and many people today do. But the one thing we've got to realize is death is coming down the tracks to all of us. But the outrageous and life and death altering good news of the gospel is that death does not have the final word. It doesn't have the last laugh. Those who believe in Jesus, to quote the most famous verse of all, will not perish but will have eternal 
life. Jesus died, as we've remembered again tonight, so that we might live forever. Death is not the end for those who believe in Jesus. It's one more step towards resurrection because Jesus tasted death for everyone. And because he rose again on the third day, as we're about to celebrate in two weeks' time, death, therefore, as the scripture says, death has now lost its sting. Death doesn't have the victory. Yes, the physical pain and sadness of leaving loved ones behind is profoundly distressing and hard. But there's hope. There's hope in the face of death because we see Jesus, because he has partaken fully of death for everyone. So we can live forever. As the old Puritans used to say, the gospel tells the story of the death of death in the death of Christ. Love that. The gospel tells the story of the death of death in the death of Christ. You see, the death of Christ accomplished the death of death. It's not like an incredible thought. Jesus has defeated death. He has overcome that enemy. But the second enemy he has overcome is the devil, the father of lies, the deceiver, the destroyer, the tempter, the lion who prowls around seeking to devour us. And we can dismiss the devil. We can trivialize the devil. We can get on our hobby horse about him. But he is, as the Bible makes clear, he is our enemy. And he does, or rather did, to quote the writer of Hebrews here in verse 14, the devil held the power of death. But not anymore. And that's what the writer of Hebrews wants to get across to his readers and across to us. Not anymore. Because to read that verse in full, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus made a lower than the angels, became flesh and blood, but only for a little while, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, the devil is a defeated enemy. He still prowls, but he prowls with a limp. And he can flash his teeth and he can flex his muscles all he likes and he does, but his power has been broken because the devil has been disarmed by the cross of Christ. And therefore, he will not have the last laugh. And so Jesus tasted death for everyone to defeat mankind's two greatest enemies, to defeat death and to defeat the devil, or to put it again another way. Jesus overcomes death. He overcomes the one who is the power of death. How? By dying. And the rest of that chapter explains more about how he actually did that by becoming a merciful and a faithful high priest, and for making atonement for our sins. Huge concepts that I'm not going to go into. Four words, but we see Jesus. I pray to God we do. In ultra 4K HD. Because that is certainly what the writer of Hebrews wants for his readers. He wants them to see Jesus, who became fully human, made lower than the angels for a little while, to see Jesus who suffered death and tasted it for everyone, 
To see Jesus who is now crowned with glory and honor. To see Jesus who is the pioneer, the author, the captain, the champion of our salvation. To see Jesus who is bringing multitudes to glory and longs to call them and wants to call them and is willing to call them as brothers and sisters. And to see Jesus who has defeated the two great enemies of us. Death and the devil. So the question is, is that how you see Jesus tonight? Is that how you see Jesus?